Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here. The lights are out. It must be hot and steaming here or something like that. So uh, if you don't know me, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's a delight to serve here. And uh, I just want to kind of tag on to Amber's announcement about Awana. You'll notice in your bulletin, we actually have a group of informational meetings come up about ministry. We have one for uh, small groups. We have one for men's ministry that's going to be connected with the breakfast. We have one for women's ministry. Again, we want to get you guys to start thinking and praying about how you can serve here at Bethel in the fall. So please check out the dates for those. Uh, we are specifically in small groups. We're looking for people who are willing to be brave enough to host groups that are kid-friendly because we had a shortage of those last year. So if that might be you, uh, we'd be extra excited. Uh, also, I just want to greet you here if this is your first time here. We know this is a big time of uh, seasonal change for folks. Some people are visiting some people are moving up, some people are moving away. So if it's your first time here, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. So um, let's pray this morning. And, and as we do, I want to remind you that our team that's going off to Czechia, uh, also known as, I guess, formerly known as the Czech Republic, I think they're in the airport right about now getting ready to go down to Anchorage. So uh, let's remember them in prayer too. Lord, uh, we do thank you for your grace. Uh, we do thank you that you have called us to be part of your family. What a blessing that is. Uh, Lord, we thank of our team leaving from here to go off to Czechia. Uh, we pray for a uh, blessing for them in health, in good team relations on, their, on our team, but even in working with the Czech team. We pray that relationships would be developed. We pray that the, the gospel would be shared clearly, that it would be understood, and that people would respond to it. And we pray that you would make disciples, Lord. Be glorified in their work. And Lord, help us today, too, as we uh, look at your word. Uh, be honored here. Uh, we pray for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, there is a big lie in our culture today about marriage. And the lie is simply this. Marriage, by and large, stinks, right? I mean, don't we hear this sentiment from a lot of people in a variety of ways today? People might say things like, well, marriage is too hard, it's no fun. It cramps your style. Or other people might say, marriage these days, it's, it's impractical. It's unrealistic. It's unromantic. And it's even downright boring. Uh, and if you haven't been exposed to some of these lies, I'll, I'll prove it to you through Facebook memes, right? Uh, so we'll see a few of these. So let's look together. I'll read them out loud uh, for people who might be listening online later. It's a, it's a picture of two hipsters, right? It says, getting married because being single is mainstream. Uh, I'm kind of happy for these hipsters. They're getting married, right? But there's something here about marriage where they say marriage is abnormal or it's retro or it's edgy. It's not intended for normal folks. Well, here's another slide here. Mickey and Minnie, the happiest place on earth. It's dating since 1928. <laughs> still not married. 90 years, Mickey. Come on. Okay, but again, the message is who needs marriage? Uh, this next one, I'm sorry to say, did make me laugh a little when I saw it. It's a picture of a bride with a shotgun. It says, till death to his part, I'm on it. Right? But the message about marriage is, is marriage somehow brings out the worst in you or makes you angry. And the last one here, it's a picture of Will Ferrell. It says, my son just asked what it's like to be married, so I deleted all the music off his iPod except one song. And that's a pretty brutal message. The message there is that marriage is confining, 
It's limited, it's boring. And I want to actually say something a little bit extra about this last meme here. About a month ago, uh, my family and I were doing the midnight sun run, or for us, it was the midnight sun leisurely stroll, not in a rush. <laughs> and I looked over at one part of the route, and I saw this huge sign. I think it was on someone's house. It might have been on a vehicle that more or less had the same sentiment as this last slide, only a lot ruder. And I'm guessing some of you who ran or walked the sun run probably saw it too. And if you didn't see it, I'll fill you in. It was basically like this sarcastic congratulations sign done by some ladies for their girlfriend who was about to get married. And the gist of the message was, congratulations on your upcoming marriage, Sylvia. I'm making up the name Sylvia. I don't remember the name. You've just limited yourself to the same boring sexual partner for the rest of your life. And the sign didn't have these last words, but the insinuation was clear. You idiot. So let me ask you a question. Are Sylvia's friends right? Is marriage and limiting yourself to the same sexual partner the rest of your life the way of the fool? And is perpetually sowing your oats or keeping your sexual options open living the dream? Is that something we ought to aspire to? These are some of the questions we're going to look at today in Scripture. Now, if you've been with us here throughout the summer, you know we are in a series on the book of Proverbs. And the series is called Proverbs, the Art of Skillful Living. Now, Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and it specifically looks at practical, down-to-earth wisdom to help us live our lives skillfully in this world that God created. And uh, this to our topic this morning is a bit of a spicy one. It's love and lust in the book of Proverbs. Sounds like a book title to me, almost, doesn't it? Love and Lust in the book of Proverbs. But really, what we're going to be talking today about is our sexuality. And I'm going to warn you up front, especially if you have younger kids with you, this message may be a bit PG-13 at points. And I also want to acknowledge up front, too, that I know that the topics of sex, our sexuality, and sexual sin can be some sensitive ones for us to broach. Some of us have, might have painful memories from the past or some intense personal struggles that we're going through right now in one of these areas. Uh, but with a measure of respect and grace, we're going to talk about some of these issues because the Bible does. And as we look at the theme of lust and love in the book of Proverbs, I want us all to understand that the book of Proverbs doesn't say everything there is to say about sex, or even everything the Bible has to say about sex. But it does have something very specific to say, something very clear and powerful to us about our sexuality and the choices we might make. So our mission here today is to faithfully hear what the book of Proverbs has to say on love and lust so we can take that message to heart. And um, I'm assuming many of you have probably read through the book of Proverbs before. Uh, you probably recognize that the specific voice of Proverbs is framed in this way. It's like a loving father who's having a man-to-man -man talk with his son who's coming of age and making his own decisions in life. And as this father instructs his son on a variety of topics, he continually contrasts these two paths, this way of wisdom that honors and fears God against the way of the fool that disregards God's way of doing things in favor of what's easiest, what's most expedient, or most self-gratifying in the short term. So when we look at any topic, really, in the book of Proverbs, we always got to be looking for this contrast of these two paths, God's way and the fool's way. 
And even though this framework is set up as a father talking to a son, all the topics that are covered, including love and lust, are equally valid for women to hear too. Because in this case, we've all got choices to make with our sexuality, and we want to honor God with what we choose. So let's look at the book of Proverbs this morning, the two different roads of love and lust, or if you want to call them that, or if you'd rather, God's way of sexuality versus the fool's way of sexuality, which might be better terms for us to, to call them by. Um, these are the questions we want to consider today. First question, what makes these two paths different? Second, which one's better? Third, how do we stick to the good path? I'll say those again. What makes the two paths different? Which one's better? And how do you stick to the good path? Now, we are going to be covering a lot of ground in the Proverbs this morning and looking at a lot of different passages. So uh, if you want to help keep track of where we're at, we made a little insert in your bulletin there with the sermon notes. You'll see a lot of scriptures listed there. It might be faster for you just to look at that list rather than constantly be flipping back and forth. So you might want to use that. And let's dive in and see what Proverbs has to say about our sexuality and the choices we can make. First question, what makes these two paths different? What are the markers that differentiate God's wise path from the path of the fool when it comes to our sexuality? The first thing that makes these two paths different is their view of covenant. Let's look at our first passage here. It is on your bulletin insert, or if you'd like, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 16. And I'll read from there. Chapter 2, 16 says, Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who's left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death, and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Now, uh, we'll pause right there. Let's talk about this for a second. The adulterous woman is going to be a frequent figure that pops up throughout the book of Proverbs as a key villainess. She really is kind of this poetic key or personification of someone who's committed herself to the fool's path of sexuality. And hopefully, this should be obvious to us, but even though the symbol is of a woman, women obviously aren't always the guilty party when it comes to sexual sin. It could just as easily be the man who is guilty of following the way of the fool when it comes to sexuality. But I think that Proverbs, in fitting with this framework of a father giving advice to his son, has chosen this symbol of the wayward wife. And what makes her so bad in this particular passage, it's in the middle there, it says that she's left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. And the key word I want us to focus on there is covenant. A covenant, uh, as you know, is a solemn agreement between two parties. It's the pledge of loyalty for a lifetime. And in the context of love and lust, what we're basically talking about here are wedding vows. There is this promise of future faithfulness that's not based on just how you feel at any given moment. This is the time when you basically say to your spouse, I'm writing you a blank check, and you're writing me a blank check, where we give each other to ourselves totally and exclusively for better or for worse till death do us part. That kind of pact. And the key difference that differentiates God's path, wise path, from the path of the fool when it comes to sexuality is how each of these paths treat the marriage covenant. 
God's wise path, not surprisingly, upholds the marriage covenant. We'll read a little bit later in more depth in chapter 5. The father is going to adjure his son to rejoice in the life of your youth. We can also read other passages like in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, where it says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. A high view of this marriage covenant and the sexuality expressed within that covenant is a mark of God's good way. Put really simply, sex within marriage is the wise path. But disregard for the marriage covenant is one hallmark of the fool's path of sexuality. Loyalty is not valued because loyalty implies that you're putting someone else's interests above your own. The only loyalty the path of the fool argues is loyalty to your own self-interests. If a relationship isn't, is working for you now, great. If not, move on. This foolish path is the voice that rationalizes, as a recent pop song does, love ain't simple, promise me no promises. Promise me no promises is the voice of the fool. Now, a second thing that makes God's path and the fool's path of sexuality different can be measured in the seriousness of sex. In other words, is sex valued and honored or cheap and no big deal? And this is not surprisingly closely related to the marriage covenant. Let's look at a pair of Proverbs. I think this is a really interesting set of them. It's in chapter 30. It's also on your handout. And they're juxtaposed next to each other to make us think a little bit here. The first one we're going to look at is in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 18. Uh, kind of an interesting one here. It says, There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Now, many commentators take this, the way of a man with a young woman, as referring to sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. But note that this, in this series of four amazing things, the way of a man with a young woman is put last. This is the crown of these four things. It's the high point of the series. That's where our attention is drawn to. There's this respect and almost a sense of awe and wonder regarding sex. We are drawn to the highest of heights, as it were, in considering the sexual union between a man and a woman. But immediately after this verse, we get verse 20 dropping to the lowest of lows here, the depths of depths. It says, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. In the second case, this act of sex is almost treated, treated like it's a drive through burger and fries. It's quick. It's easy. No trace when she's done. And she says, What's the big deal? It's just a little casual sex, friends with benefits, two consenting adults, no ties, no strings attached, no harm done. Now, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller have written a really excellent devotional on the book of Proverbs. And uh, like some other commentators, they note the way that these two Proverbs here, the, the set of four and the way of the adulteress, are set back to back. And uh, they make this comment on it. I think this is a really good comment here. They write, sex outside of marriage inevitably diminishes to that level, meaning that it's no big deal. A consumer transacts with a vendor as long as the produce is good enough in quality and price. Sex apart from marriage becomes a product we consume if we find someone attractive enough in quality 
and low enough in price. But if the quality goes down or the cost goes up, we can walk away because there's no covenant. If sex comes only with the radical self-giving and whole life commitment of marriage, that takes sex off the market, as it were, and makes it priceless. Sex on the market no longer soars, it only wipes its mouth. So what makes these two paths of sexuality different? The wise path, God's path, love, if you will, has a high regard for the marriage covenant. Sex is valued, it's priceless as it were, and it soars. The fool's path, lust, if you will, has no loyalty to others, but only self-interest. Sex is cheap, and it merely serves one's appetite and convenience. Well, let's look at our second question. Which path is better? And of course, you're going to say, well, hey, we're in a church. It's Sunday. Of course, God's path is better, right? This is the easy one. But certainly, let's acknowledge that not everyone thinks that. Sylvia's friends who put up that sign at the midnight sun run, they don't buy it. And you might have noticed that the fool's path, lust, we could even say adultery because of how it treats the marriage covenant, has a pretty powerful PR campaign going on, right? Our media promotes this message. Mixed sex? What's the big deal? Adultery? What about it? It's exciting. It sells. It's what the masses want. Both paths claim to be the better one. So which one's really better? Before you answer that, consider our next point. Adultery lies. Simple as that. It lies. It deceives us. Now, this was one of the most interesting things that uh, when I got to study the, the book of Proverbs the past week or two, I noticed that many times when the symbol of the adulterous woman popped up, it often mentioned that of all things that could be mentioned, that she's a smooth talker, right? A little weird. But let's look at this in Scripture. Listen how frequently smooth talking is mentioned here. We already read in Chapter 2, verse 16, it said, Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. It says in chapter 5, verse 3, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech of all things is smoother than oil. Chapter 6, verse 24 says that wisdom will help keep this young man from the smooth talk of the wayward woman. Or in chapter 7, verse 5, it says the same about the wayward woman with her seductive words over and over again. I think that this often repeated theme of seductive words and smooth talk, it highlights the fact that lust, adultery, who cares what God thinks about sex path, it lies in clever and convincing ways. Proverbs chapter 7 uh, we get an example of some of these words that the wayward woman uses to lure in her prey. Now, I didn't put this one on the handout in your bulletin um, because it's a little bit longer. But if you want to follow along here as I read, these are the words the wayward woman uses to entice a young man with no discretion. We're going to be in chapter 7, starting in verse 14. And she says to him, Today I fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you, and I found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money 
and he will not be home till full noon. And then that passage ends with this uh, statement. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And as we listen to this, can we hear some of the lies in her speech? She basically starts out saying, oh, I want to honor God just like you. I did my fellowship offerings. You're the one I've been looking for. You're special. It's going to be so good, and there's no ties, no consequences, and we won't get caught. My husband's gone. He'll be gone for a month. And across the centuries, that path of lust, cheap, no-covenant sex still lies to us, saying things like, it's a natural thing to appreciate the opposite sex. This won't hurt my marriage. I deserve this. There's no downside to this. Or as one affair-on-demand website that's been in the news, Ashley Madison, I'm sure many of you have heard about it, advertises, life is short. Three little words can destroy a life if you buy into that. The way of foolish sexuality lies. It promises good, but it delivers evil. In other words, adultery doesn't just lie. Adultery destroys. Now, I'm going to keep on reading the rest of the story there in chapter 7, that young man uh, who heard those smooth words, and I'll pick it up in verse 22. This is what happens to him when he took the bait. Verse 22, it says, All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Not a pretty picture. Like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing him that it'll cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. And uh, this theme of adultery leading to death is actually a pretty common one in Proverbs. We've already had two passages so far that we've mentioned that have mentioned that result. And we could add more to it. Just really quickly, Proverbs 5.5 5 talks about the adulterous woman. says, her feet go down to death. Her steps lead right to the grave. Proverbs 6.26 says, another man's wife preys on your very life. And there are other verses. So we have to ask the question, well, does this mean if you commit adultery, you're going to suddenly keel over and die? Like a comet's going to come out of heaven and just strike you dead? Well, no. Uh, this is poetic language that we're dealing here in Proverbs but I think that what death is talking about or indicating here, it's ruin, it's devastation that naturally comes from following the fool's path of sexuality. And uh, we really don't even have time this morning to go into all the passages that talk about the, the bad results that can follow from the fool's path of lust and adultery. But I'll just list some of the ones that Proverbs mentions. Loss of reputation. Loss of money. A wasted life legal trouble, and physical harm. And if you don't think, if you're still not convinced that the path of the fool of lust and adultery is harmful, talk to someone who's been through it and ask them if it was worth it. I don't think any of us would be surprised to hear the answer. The path of lust and adultery lies with very deceiving words, and it destroys. But... The flip side of this is that the path of wisdom, God's way, the way of marital faithfulness, receives God's blessing. And this is the good stuff here. 
I'm going to focus in on one passage here, and it's a delightful one. I believe I put this one on the, the insert. This father is speaking to his son in Proverbs, and in chapter 5, he says to him, starting in verse 15, he says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets and your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And uh, just take note here, there's a lot of poetic language going on, just like you'd find in the Song of Songs. We're not going to unpack all the specific poetry in there. But commentators are pretty much unanimous on this passage that it's talking about the delight that a husband and wife ought to have in their sexual relationship. It's to be rich and refreshing and wonderful, the sharing of the union of two people who've given themselves to each other for a lifetime. This isn't a treasure to be shared with outsiders. It's blessed by God, and there's nothing prudish about sex within the covenant of marriage. It can be deep and rich, and as Tim Keller puts it, it can soar. So to answer our second question, well, yes, God's way of sexuality is better, despite the loud and strong protestations to the contrary. The path of adultery lies and it kills. But God's way is blessed and brings delight and life. Well, last, now that we know the better path and now that we know the difference between the two paths, how do you walk it out? Or if you want to put it another way, how do you avoid that foolish path of sexuality that calls with its siren's cry and keep to God's path? Well, two things here. The first thing is keep your distance from the path of lust and adultery. Two quick verses here. First one is in Proverbs 5, starting in verse 7. It says, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Keep far away from her. Here's another passage. This one's not listed on your sheet, but again, it's in chapter 7. Starts in verse 6. This is the father looking out of his window. It says, At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner. And the her here is the adulterous woman. Walking along in the direction of her house at twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. And this is the same man that we've already talked about earlier who gets seduced by the smooth lies of adultery and gets destroyed. But the point of both of these passages is to keep your distance. The young man knew where the adulterous woman lived, apparently, but he didn't stay away. He wandered near as the sun's setting, as it's getting darker. The opportunity's going to be there. And likewise, I'd say that uh, we know where certain things are in our lives that can titillate us and excite us, and call us to considering going down the path of the fool. But I really think that we need to heed the danger and stay far away. Not nearby, not in the neighborhood, but far away. And as a point of application, I'd just like us to consider what that would look like in a few different situations. The current temptation might be a flirtatious business associate. What would it look like to stay far away? If the current temptation is internet pornography, what precautions could you take to keep far away? 
If your current temptation is simply as innocent as a popular TV show that everybody watches, but you know that it captures your imagination in a way that it shouldn't, what does it look like to keep far away? The idea here is that we really need to recognize the danger of the fool's way and humbly keep far from it, knowing how many people it's trapped before. Great is the throng. Many have, many have gone down that road. And I want to say a warning to all of us, if we think we're bulletproof, if we think, oh, I can handle X, Y, or Z, better be extra careful because pride can come before a fall. We need to humble ourselves and take extra steps to keep our distance. Now, I think that keeping far from temptation is part of the solution, but I think there's something even more important we need to pay attention to if we want to stick to God's path and walk it out. The single most important thing here is that we learn to guard our heart. We need to guard our hearts. Let's just read a few verses here. This could almost be a sermon in itself here, but I won't go that long for you. Proverbs 6.25, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. Proverbs 7.25, Do not let your heart turn to her ways or strain to her paths. Chapter 23.26, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. Chapter 6, 20 and 21. My son, keep your father's command and in it for, do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. And there are other verses here. But why such an emphasis from this father to his son about the heart? I think it all boils down to this. Probably the most important verse of our day here today. Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Think about that for a second. That is a pretty big claim. Everything we do flows from our hearts. But I think that most of us recognize this is true. And that's why in this battleground between these two paths of love and lust, between God's way and the way of the fool, the battleground really is in our hearts. Do not let your heart turn to her way. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. So I think we have to ask ourselves a hard question. What do we want? What do we really want? Because that's going to be the fountain that's going to bubble up in our words, in our actions, in our hearts, and their desires are what each of us will ruthlessly hunt down. Uh, Proverbs 16.26, one of my favorite Proverbs, doesn't mention the heart, but it's in the same vein here, puts it this way. The appetite of laborers works for them. Their hunger drives them on. Doesn't mention the heart, mentions appetite there. But the concept is this, this is the same. We are going to chase down in life what we really want. So we need to guard our hearts. Well, how do you do that? I think the first step is just to consider our hearts. Where, is, where are our hearts at? This is kind of like if you go to one of those big mega malls in the lower 48 or Disneyland and you don't know where you are, and you look at the big map up there, and it says with a big red arrow, you are here, telling you where you are. I think the first step is we just need to sit down in prayer before God and say, where am I at, God? Show me for real. Don't let me be tricked by my own heart, but where am I? And we ought to be totally honest before God, because here's something shocking. He already knows our hearts, and he loves us still. And once we do that, probably more likely than not, many of us will realize that our hearts are not where they ought to be. 
The next thing we do after that, I think, is we train our hearts. And I think we do this by continually putting the right things in front of our hearts as reminders as what the best is. I mean, I think a lot of us maybe do this already. Uh, I know upstairs in my office, I have kind of a nook, like a little thing on the wall. And I'll put up, and I also have things on my desk, I put up photos of my family, quotations that inspire me, uh, maps and other things of different parts of the world to remind me that the gospel needs to go out, these kinds of things. And I don't think about all those things all the time every day, but I put them there so that, you know, if my, my eyes drift over there, I'll see one of them on the wall, and I'll go, that's right, that's important to me. That's something worth living for. And we do this for inspiration. Maybe you have goals for your, your work or something else. But we need to do the same thing. We need to put the right things in front of our hearts and train our hearts. I think some ways we can do that is by regularly reading Scripture, studying it, delighting in it, singing worship songs. Uh, I'll just put a little note there. Watch the lyrics. Not all worship songs are created equally. Make sure it lines up with Scripture. I think we do that even through coming to church. We're continually putting the right things before our eyes, and there's probably other ways to do that too. So we got to see where our hearts are at. we got to train our hearts. But really, the most part, important part of guarding our hearts, knowing where they are is not enough. Training them is not enough in itself. And the reason why is because we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We need God's help. No surprise here, right? Thankfully, God has allowed his Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts so he can conform us to the likeness of Christ and help us in this battle for our hearts. Because we aren't able to walk the right path of sexuality or really any other area apart from God's help and mercy. And so to, God, to guard our hearts, I think we also need to cry out to God to help us and to change our hearts. And so if we get to that time of prayer and we're saying, God, where's my heart? You know, and say, God, you know what? I'm sorry, I, I feel like I really want fill in the blank with whatever that is. I know that's not right. Help me to want the right things. Help me to want the things that please you and glorify you. And fill me up, Holy Spirit, and give me the strength and the willingness to follow you because I need your help. I believe God honors that kind of prayer because we are dependent upon him and not ourselves to walk out the right path. Well, on a similar note of dependence, let's just finish this morning by reading through our catechism that we've been considering each week as we've been going through the book of Proverbs. I'll read the question, then we'll all read the answers together. Are we saved by wisdom? No. We're saved from the guilt of our sin through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, was buried, and rose again. What good, then, is wisdom? By wisdom, we are rescued from the pain and folly given the best chance to enjoy life as God designed it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you, you know all things. You know our hearts better than we know our own, and you love us still. We want to follow you, but we need your help. Help us to walk this out, Lord, not in our own strength, but knowing that we want the very best, and that's your path, your way. For your glory, Jesus, we pray. Amen.